This time of year is kind of uh, challenging for preachers to preach. Not difficult, but when you get to Christmas and you get to uh, Easter, that's probably some of the most familiar uh, Bible that a lot of folks have had. We've studied the birth of Jesus. We've studied the crucifixion of Jesus. And so it's a challenge to uh, try to present this in a way that makes us think. But this morning we're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. And then next week we're going to look at the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the burial of Jesus is something that doesn't get a whole lot of attention, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the gospel's comprised of three basic elements, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to spend a little bit of time. We're pretty familiar with the crucifixion. We're pretty familiar with the resurrection. We're going to spend a little time next week before we talk about the resurrection talking about the burial of Jesus and what was involved in that and, and why the burial of Jesus is so important. But I, I call that the ignored part of the gospel because I don't know that I've ever heard more than one or two sermons in my life on the burial of Jesus. So we're going to look at that uh, next week. And if I had planned my Sundays better, we'd give a separate lesson on all, all three. But I think we could work uh, the burial and resurrection in uh, together next week. Uh, all of Old Testament history and prophecy points toward the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you look at the Old Testament, it's full of prophecies about becoming Messiah and his death, his burial, his resurrection. When you read the New Testament letters, uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, all of those, even Revelation, they all point back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I believe that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the center point of human history. Everything that we ever hope to be revolves around the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today's text is a very well-known paragraph of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And starting at verse 32, we'll read to verse 43. Beginning Luke 23, 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, or the skull, some translations say, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand, and the other on the left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. 
answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When we read this very well-known passage, we see four things. First of all, we see that prophecy becomes history. Prophecy becomes history. The Old Testament is filled, and I said this before, of prophecy about Jesus and his crucifixion. Psalms, Isaiah, there's just so many Old Testament prophecies that, that talk about uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. But with the crucifixion, prophecy becomes history. It becomes reality. And this can be summed up in the sentence, there they crucified him. That's in verse 33. As we take this sentence apart, we're going to look at each word. There they crucified him. There. It was a precise place. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that at a certain time and a certain place, the creator of the universe entered into our world? Around 5 B.C., a human baby entered the world in the small village of Bethlehem. He would be raised in the backwater town of Nazareth. He would preach primarily in the obscure region of Galilee, and he would die just outside the city gates of Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha, or the skull, or Calvary, depending on which, whether it's Latin, Hebrew, or Greek that's being translated. It all says the same place, and refers to the same place. But when you look at this, it almost seems random, but make no mistake, Every part of the life of Jesus Christ was planned. This was all planned by God. And we won't look there, but Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 tells us that in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came. The fullness of time, when everything was ready, God told his son, son, it's time. And Jesus left the throne room and he came to earth. He left the throne room as the Son of God, King, and he came to earth as a baby, human, in a cattle stall. He lived his life for 33 years, never traveled outside of Palestine, at least that's recorded. He never wrote a book. He never, now I'm talking about the physical Jesus, never wrote a book. He created the world as his as eternal God. So understand the distinction I'm making here. We're looking at the physical Jesus. He never wrote a book. Yet at Calvary, there they crucified him. At the place where God determined, said he'd be crucified with two thieves, the Old Testament does. And he was. It said he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And he was. All of these seemingly random things God has control over. 
it shows the sovereignty of God. And we'll, we'll look at that a little deeper next week when we look at the burial of Jesus. But make no mistake, none of this is haphazard. None of this is by chance. Jesus knew what his future held. There, they crucified him. What about the word they? There, they. It wasn't a particular people. Did you notice Luke doesn't say the Romans crucified him? Or the Jews crucified him? Or the, that Pilate crucified him? Rather, Luke uses a generic they. They crucified him. I think that's done on purpose. You know why? Because every human being that's ever lived can crawl under that pronoun, they. Because you know what? I crucified Jesus. You crucified Jesus. With our sins that we committed, we put Jesus, we sent Jesus to the cross. Because we've sinned, we too have crucified Jesus Christ. There they crucified. It was a painful death. There isn't any poetry here as Luke writes about Jesus' crucifixion. Just a simple sentence. There they crucified him. We humans tend to romanticize the crucifixion of Jesus. Neither Luke nor the other gospel writers talk about the clanging of hammers hitting the cold steel of the spikes. Or three rusty nails or even on a hill far away. As a matter of fact, Jesus wouldn't have been crucified on a hill. He would have been crucified right by the road for easy access. Crucifixion was reserved mainly for Jewish insurrectionists. And the, the Romans would crucify them and put them there so everybody could see what happens to insurrectionists. So it would have been, been by the road. The poles in the ground would have stayed there. What Jesus carried when it says he carried his cross was the cross beam that would go across, fit into the notch on the, on the cross standing up. Jesus had been beaten to the point he was too weak even to carry that cross beam. And don't think Jesus was a wimp. He was a carpenter. Think about how hard, much, how hard of a job a carpenter would have been without skill saws. And without chainsaws, and without all the modern tools, hard carpentry works a hard work today. But Jesus was not a wimp. But Jesus had been beaten within an inch of his life before he was ever crucified. But the cross beam would have been taken. The person being crucified would have had a spike driven through each wrist. It wouldn't have been driven through their hands because the hands, it would have ripped out. It was on their wrists. And then the cross, then their feet would have been crossed like this. They would have been the, uh, well, next thing that they would have done, after the hands were spiked, they would have taken, the soldiers would have taken that cross beam and fit it into the notch of the cross. So Jesus wouldn't have been lifted very high. It would have been close to eye level, just enough where that notch could be fit into the, they didn't have cranes and such things to lift up and, and put things in. The spikes would have been, the, the feet were crossed, one spike would have been driven through both feet. And then when that person is hanging on the cross, they would have slowly, as they got tired, when your feet's 
put together, you start going like you can't push yourself up. And so when your arms gave way and your feet gave way, you would slowly asphyxiate. You couldn't catch your breath and you would die. For most people, crucifixion took days. It was not a pleasant death. Now Jesus, he, he died in six hours. God was very merciful. Uh, Pilate was even surprised that Jesus had passed away so soon. We'll talk about this next week. But it wasn't a romantic death. It was a painful death. And Luke simply records there they crucified him. The last word of that sentence, him, he was a perfect sacrifice. Jesus was crucified with sinners. He was crucified by sinners. He was crucified for sinners. However, Jesus was sinless, making him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. It was a particular place. Prophecy becomes history. But second, intentions become action. Another sentence in this story says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. We learned in our experiencing God class, didn't we? In Luke 19, 10, Jesus says, I've come to seek and save the lost. That was Jesus' intention. That is why he came. But that, that is what's his goal. That was his intention. But here at the crucifixion, intention becomes action. Jesus actually does forgive. Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This prayer offered by Jesus is a unique prayer. And it really is a prayer. Father, forgive them. It's, it's a conversation that Jesus has with his father. David would not have offered this prayer. You read through the Psalms over and over. David says, Lord, I just wish you'd take vengeance on my enemies. I wish you would just do to them what they deserve. Elijah would have called down fire from heaven. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, said very simply, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It was a prayer of agony. Jesus offered this prayer while he was being crucified. Can you imagine the pain of everything Jesus was going through? And in the middle of all that, he still has the presence of mind to say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It was a prayer of affection. He says, Father, he prays from the position of his sonship. You know, we are adopted children. We're adopted into the family of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a son by affiliation. He was God's only begotten son. Jesus could have asked for anything. He could have requested a legion of angels to come down and take him off the cross. He could have gone all raiders of the lost ark and called down fire from heaven to burn up all of his enemies, his accusers, and his murderers. Instead, he asked for the forgiveness of humanity. Because you know what? Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing includes me. It includes you. Forgive them. Jesus is forgiving us on the cross. 
asking God to forgive us. Now that's accomplished through his blood and we understand that. But understand, when Jesus was dying, he could have come across that, come off that cross anytime he wanted to. With his love, he thought of me and you and every human that's ever lived. There was a prayer of absolution. Father, forgive them. And you know, when Jesus asked the Father to forgive, he knew exactly how the Father forgives. When you and I forgive, we tend to not forget, do we? We'll make a file and we put it in that person's, we put that transaction in a file somewhere. And boy, if that person ever messes up again, we drag that file out and said, Aha, I knew you didn't mean it. You did this back on April 6, 1997. Guys, wives are good about that, right? They have, they have, they have memories. Uh, us guys, we don't much remember. Uh, Ann used to ask me, "You know where we got this? Whatever?" And I, and I have no idea if she she remembered twenty five years ago. Women do. When God forgives, Hebrews eight twelve says, "When God forgives, He also forgets." He says He casts our sins as far away that they can't be recalled. Wouldn't that be cool? Don't you wish we as humans could have that ability to when, when we mess up and say forgive me that that person that we have wronged would not only forgive and say I'm sorry but would forget about it? Because my problem is when I ask someone to forgive me I still feel guilty that I've done that and so I, I feel kind of less than normal around them even though they said I forgive you because I know they remember what I did. When God forgives, not only does is Jesus saying forgive them, he's saying God forget about it. What a statement. Father forgive them. Why? Because they don't know what they're doing. God forgives and he forgets totally and completely and absolutely. It was a prayer of abundance. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Notice they didn't ask for forgiveness. Jesus did. Someone will ask me, Preacher, what do I need to forgive those people that don't ask me to forgive them? Jesus did, didn't he? Father, forgive them. Jesus wasn't specific in his prayer for forgiveness. He didn't say, forgive Pilate, forgive the soldiers, forgive the centurions. He asked God to forgive them. And just like that them of those who crucified him, they crucified him, Father, forgive them. We need to crawl under that pronoun too. Because we're part of it. Jesus forgives us. Father, forgive us. Now that's a look a little bit at the crucifixion. For the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at the two thieves who were crucified with Jesus. First we see awareness becomes confession. One of the thieves said in verse 42, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. When we look at these two thieves, Luke uses the Greek word which we translate evildoers, bad guys. 
It's interesting that Matthew and Mark use the Greek word lestes, or robber, or thief. They use two different Greek words. There were a lot more words in the Greek language than the English language to describe different things. I believe, and I can't prove this, and this is Planck's ponderings. I've kind of thought about this a lot. I believe these two thieves were probably in cahoots with Barabbas. Remember Barabbas in, in the story of the crucifixion? When Pilate wanted to release Jesus, it was custom for uh, the Jew, uh, the for Pilate to release someone every year uh, at, at the Passover time. And so Pilate thought they would ask for Jesus instead of Bar, uh, Bar, Barabbas, the, uh, the, the thief and the insurrectionist. Instead, they asked for Barabbas. The fact that these thieves were locked up at the same time and the same word that is used for the thieves, now Luke doesn't talk about Barabbas, but uh, Matthew and Mark do, those words, are, they're, they're the same Greek words for Barabbas as these thieves. Now whether or not they were with Barabbas or not, I kind of think they probably were. But either way, they were crooks. They were bad guys. And what can we learn from this tale of two thieves? Number one, these two thieves represent all of humanity. Both of them are guilty. Both of them are justly condemned. And Mark tells us that both thieves initially mocked and made fun of Jesus. You know, it's easy to not feel sorry for these two evildoers. Because in our minds, they're getting exactly what they deserve. But if we're honest, aren't we all evildoers? Haven't we all done wrong? These thieves simply represent us. The only sinless person in the whole wide world that's ever lived is Jesus Christ. We're not represented by Jesus before he saves us. Now we're represented by Jesus after he saves us. But before we're saved by the blood of Jesus, we are just like those thieves. Both of these thieves witness the same thing. They both see Jesus facing the same condemnation they're facing. They both feel the spikes. They are both struggling to catch their next breath. They both are seeing what Jesus is seeing. They both hear the insults being hurled at Jesus. And at first, some of them, or both of them, do their own hurling at Jesus. Both of these thieves see, hear, and experience the exact same thing. Yet, these two thieves respond in two totally different ways. One thief remains hardened and mocking. This shows to me the totally depravity of man. What kind of person could tease and mock a man who is suffering exactly like he was? It would be one thing for the people on the ground and the soldiers and the government officials and the leaders to mock Jesus, but for somebody that's going through the exact same thing Jesus is going through to mock him as well, what kind of person does that? How hardened do you have to be to do that? Now one thief, he remains hardened. The other thief is humble. And he asks his fellow evildoer, he said, don't you even fear God? 
This man is suffering the same fate as we are. As a result of our actions, we're getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. Also, these two thieves reveal their hearts by what they say. Both thieves see Jesus suffering right along with them. One thief remains hardened. However, the other thief recognizes that while Jesus might be suffering with them, he isn't suffering like them. They are mocking, but Jesus is praying and forgiving and having a tender conversation with his mother and his beloved apostle. This thief hears, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And since crucifixion is primarily reserved for Jews, I can't help but wonder whether this thief, as a boy, had been taken to temple by his children. Perhaps he recognized when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe he realized that's the same way that Psalm 22 starts. For whatever it is, in the way that he died, Jesus breaks through the cold exterior of this thief's heart. And it allows him to see Jesus for who Jesus truly is. These two thieves experience exactly the same thing. And they have two totally opposite reactions. While one thief remains hardened and asks Jesus to save him from his circumstances. Because isn't what that thief, isn't that what he's doing? He says, I fear Jesus, save us, or save yourself. Oh, and while you're at it, save us. Save me from my circumstances. Don't we ask that, don't we pray that prayer sometimes? Save us from our circumstances. We're not necessarily sad we got that, that we sinned, we're sad we got caught. That's where this thief was. But the other thief, he doesn't even ask to be saved. He just says, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. This thief's acceptance becomes a promise. Jesus promises, today you'll be with me in paradise. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. And the rest of the apostles forsook Jesus. They, along with the rest of Israel, expected Jesus. They expected a Messiah who was going to free them from Roman rule. Was going to break the backs of Rome. And I just wonder, at this moment in time, besides maybe Martha, the only person who had put the pieces together concerning who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do was this thief. Of all the people there, this thief recognized that Jesus Christ was a king. And he was going to have a kingdom and he was going to rule over it. Now I'm not sure he knew it was going to be immediate. He may have thought it was going to be 10,000 years from now. But what did he ask Jesus? He doesn't say, if you're a king, remember me when you come, if you, if you come into your kingdom. He says, remember me. When you come in to your kingdom. 
you ever wish you could pull back the curtain to get a look at what's on the other side when we leave this earth? You ever wish you could talk to one of your loved ones that's passed on just for five minutes to find out what's going to happen? I'm convinced that when Jesus answers this thief and he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus pulls back the curtain of heaven and he lets us see into the future. He lets us see beyond death. Why do I say that? Because with this sentence, beyond death, I know there's consciousness. Because Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's not going to be a period of soul sleep. There's not going to be a period where we are unconscious. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. We're going to be conscious when we get to the other side. Besides this sentence, another, and we won't read it for time's sake, but in Luke 16 is a parable of the rich man and Lazarus, if you remember that paragraph. Luke 16, 22, uh, 23 is the verses I want us to see. But it says that the rich man, or that Lazarus died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and was in torment. Immediately after they died, they had consciousness. We don't just go to sleep and sleep forever. <clears throat> One thing I know on the other side is there's consciousness. We're going to be aware of who we are. As a matter of fact, the rich man saw Lazarus and recognized Lazarus. He recognized Abraham. So not only will we have consciousness, also we'll have personality. Today you will be with me in paradise. Not only will we be conscious, we will be us. We will know who we are, and we're going to know who others are. Jesus says, today you'll be with me. The rich man, we said, saw and recognized Abraham and Lazarus. So beyond death, there is consciousness. Beyond death, there is personality. Beyond death, there's a place. Today you will be with me in paradise. You know, I don't know what paradise is going to look like. We get some clues in Scripture. But I know when God uses a word, it's way different than when humans use a word. As a matter of fact, you know what God said about a created world? God created the sun and the moon, and he put the, the stripes on a zebra, and he created water and the ocean and all the fish and the giraffes with the long necks and the platypus, platypi, I guess that's how you'd say uh, more than one platypus. Think about that. That's a brain teaser. What's the plural of platypus? But God made that funny looking animal. That mammal with a beak and webbed feet. God did all of it. Made the universe. The Milky Way. The planets. The stars. And you know what he said about it when he finished? It was good. I make a pot of spaghetti and I'll say it's awesome. You know? The creator of the world creates the world and says it's good. If the Lord says, today you'll be with me in paradise, it's greater than anything we can imagine. It's a place. It's a real, it's some place that's real. It's some place that saved folks are going. It's also a person. 
Beyond death, there is a person. Today, you will be with me in paradise. I don't know a lot about paradise, but I know that my Jesus is there. And that's enough. When we read the rest of the story, we discover that Jesus dies first. And one of the things I think that he did after he died, and I don't know if he did this physically or if he did it uh, not literal, I don't know whether it's little, literal or spiritual, but Jesus go, takes his blood and he goes into the Holy of Holies and he puts that blood on the mercy seat so every human being that's ever sinned has the ability to have their sins forgiven. And then after that's done, you know one of the first things Jesus Christ did when he got to paradise? He welcomed this thief. Isn't that cool? We don't know how much longer the thief lived after Jesus died. We know it wasn't long because the body had to be taken down because a high, the high holy day of Passover was coming. But Jesus died first. And one of the first things he does is put his hand out to this thief. Isn't that cool? This crook bore no spiritual fruit. He had no good works. He had nothing to offer. All he has was his faith in who Jesus was. And that's all he needed. This thief was welcomed into the same paradise as Abraham, Paul, Peter. Do you know that there is no such thing as paradise and uber-paradise? There are no stepchildren in God's family. You're either a child of God or you're not. When we make a profession of faith, we're confessing, I am guilty. I am condemned. I am helpless. Jesus is divine. Jesus is sovereign. And Jesus is enough. When you confess and commit to Jesus, it is enough. When we profess the same faith as this thief, we will receive the same promise. Miss Mary, if you'll make your way up, we're going to have an invitation song. But I want to remind you this morning that there are two thieves in our lesson and in our text. That one thief has been with Jesus ever since he died. From our text to today, he's still up there, whatever paradise and wherever paradise is, he is up there enjoying it with Jesus. But there's a second thief. And that second thief since our text was written and he died, has spent his eternity in hell. Because that's the only two choices, heaven or hell. And I think most everyone here this morning is Christians, but I don't want to take that chance. I don't want to assume something that's not true. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, hell awaits you. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's not because you're, it's because you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior.
You haven't got the cure. The only cure for our sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. The only way to get to the Father is through Jesus Christ. You just need to admit you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself. Say, Jesus, save me. Just like the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Confess your faith in the Lord, who Jesus is. Turn your life over to him. And when it's your time, he'll be there to welcome you in paradise as well. Maybe you've done that and you've wandered off from the Lord. Us, we human beings, we tend to wander. We're like sheep. Why not make today the day you come back? He stands ready and willing to forgive if you're just willing to come home. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for loving us. Thank you for this tale of two thieves. The simplicity of it, Father, sometimes makes us speed right through the reading, but may we never go so fast as to not see your amazing grace and your love written all over this. I pray, Father, if there's someone here that is out of your will in any way, whether they need to trust Jesus as their Savior or whether they just need to come home, I pray your Holy Spirit would convict them and search our hearts and convict us, Father, in ways that things we need to forsake or things that we need to do in order to be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.